your stuff later on. But precisely, actually. Uh, go ahead. Oh, that was. All right, let's get started. My name is Abby Clemens, and I will be your moderator this evening. And it seems like most of you already know this fine gentleman beside me in the really cool new hat. But in case any of you don't, who are you? Uh, so I'm Keith Baker. I am the creator of the Eberron campaign setting. Uh, I also created the card game Bloom, and recently, over the last couple years, I started my own company, Together Studios, and we have put out the role-playing game Phoenix Dawn Command, uh, along with the card games Illimat and Action Cats. Uh, and currently, along with uh, lots of other people, I'm creating Eberron material for the DMs table. story. In 2002, uh, Wizards of the Coast announced what they call the Fantasy Setting Search, where they basically had just acquired Dungeons, or you know, relatively recently acquired Dungeons and Dragons uh, from TSR, and were essentially saying, well, we want, you know, we've got all the old settings, we want to do something of our own. And they just put out a call saying, anybody who wants, including Wizards of the Coast employees, you know, anyone out there, uh, could submit a one-page description of a world. Uh, and it was a very specific, tell us who the heroes are, tell us how magic works. You know, there was a format sort of to follow. Uh, and I, at the time, had recently quit my day job doing computer games to see if I could, uh, you know, could I make a living as a freelance role-playing writer? And the answer probably was no, but <laughs> they have. So it was very good timing for me. Uh, and they got 12,000 entries, is the number I've heard, of which apparently um, 1,000 had to be thrown out for various reasons. People hadn't followed the rules, people needed whatever. But 11,000 entries. Um, and from that, they picked 10, or 11, actually. Uh, and we turned those into 10 pages. From that, they picked uh, Everon. You know, they picked three, and we turned each of those into 100 pages. And then they picked Everon out of that. And then I worked with them to develop it and bring it out there. Now, uh, Everon was not a setting I had played before. It was not that this was my home, uh, my in my home campaign that I've been running for decades or anything like that. It was an idea that I came up with literally just, I, I submitted seven different ideas to the fantasy setting search. And it was the seventh. Uh, and it was basically, I had been spending the three years prior to that working on an MMORPG computer game uh, that was pulp themed and had been watching a ton of Republic serials, you know, pulp movies and such. And so I had this initial idea of, I love, you know, that in film noir. What if you took some of that flavor and put it into D&D? It is also always just one of my things of, again, arcane magic throughout the history of D&D. The magic of the wizard or magic user behaves in a scientific, reliable manner. If that existed, why would it not evolve in a scientific manner and be incorporated into the world in that way? So that just sort of, those two things, the pulp and film noir influence combined with magic as a logical part of the world uh, were the two things that then became Eberron. But again, that was a one-page description. 
Uh, and and I recall like the opening paragraph. You know, I just wrote a little paragraph that top was like, Mickey Red Blade was polishing his dagger when she walked in. She was three feet of trouble, the most beautiful halfling he'd ever seen. But he could see in her eyes, she was a danger. You know, meanwhile outside, someone's, you know, assembling his sniper's rod of seven parts, you know, waiting for her to come out the door. And so it was just throwing in just purely, it was flavor. You know, it was just this idea of what if you had, you know, Dashiell Hammond writing D&D. Uh, when they picked it, and they said, oh, by the way, you're going into this round of 11. I was just like, what? Um, okay, guess I have to figure out how this worked. And so as it, as it went forward, I did pull in various things from other campaigns I've run, like the gnomes in particular are very much, you know, something from one of my earlier campaigns. Uh, and, you know, one of the things I'll note is that the Warforged in particular didn't actually come into things until the third, the 100-page document. Because it was when we got to the 100-page document that they actually talked to the three of us and said, here's what we like about your campaign and here's what we don't. And I had actually been limiting the number of races because I didn't want, I'm like, D&D has so many races, it doesn't need more. And they actually said one of the things we'd like to see in the 100-page is a couple new races that really capture the flavor of the setting as something where you know, magic is part of the world. And the Warforged skin totally fit that idea that this is a world where magic is to be used for, you know, to create tools for society. Uh, and that the Warforged are a product of the war. Um, and so, yeah, you know, a lot of these different things both either developed in that 100-page document or, again, what happened is once they picked it, I then sat down in a room for a week with Chris Perkins, Bill Slavisek, James Wyatt, and we just basically brainstormed all week. You know, so the original world that I created, and part of it is I created that world in like two months, uh, which was you know working very fast and things. And there were a lot of good ideas, uh, but there were things like we didn't have the dragon marked houses uh, defined in the same way. We had dragon marks, but they were different. And so, you know, a lot of the cool ideas to setting were things that came out of that collaboration. So, I mean, I call myself the creator of Eberron because it came from my core idea. But again, Bill Slavisek, Chris Perkins, James White, you know, all of us together, you know, really developed that core idea. I will note the name Eberron was, was actually Bill Slavisek's name. Uh, that the original thing I submitted didn't have a name for the world. It was just called Thrilling Tales of Swords and Sorcery because it was more about the flavor than the world. Um, the other thing I'd like to note on that specifically is Halfling's Riding Dinosaurs, one of my favorite things in the setting. That came out of that collaboration. I had a land of nomadic halflings, and we were just having that discussion, and people were like, well, you know, this makes sense, but, you know, there's something cooler we can do with these guys. You know, like, what are they riding? And to this day, none of us can agree on who said the idea. I feel that it was James Wyatt because his son was five years old and really into dinosaurs. And he was like, what about dinosaurs? Uh, you know, I think he thinks it was Chris Perkins. But the point was, we all were like, dinosaurs? You know, are not happening on a rafter. How is that not fun? And so I mean, a bunch of things that are sort of core elements of the setting now really were, it was something that evolved 
and even from when it first came out in 3.5, it has evolved. Uh, just a lot of little elements, the blood of all, you know, claw, things like that have continued to sort of be crystallized <laughs> as it's gone forward. And you talked about the Warforged a little bit. Mm -hmm. In the Eberron setting, you have a few different races and a few different classes that are very unique to Eberron, such as the Arthas or the Warforged. So how many of, the, of them do you think are completely unique that you came up with or that you came up with in the collab with Wizards? Well, I mean, again, to me, I, I don't try and completely say, well, this part was mine. So, like, I mean, one of the parts of the Warforged is the Warforged were something I came up with in that 100-page set. So, yes, I came up with the Warforged. But, at the time, I had it that they were actually handcrafted. That they there was, like, literally, like, a thousand of them, and they were all custom-made. And during, as a group, we developed the sort of whole core idea of the dragon mark houses, and that's where we said, no, we're gonna add this more industrial aspect to them, and they are gonna be mass produced. So I mean, again, all the ideas sort of crystallized were finalized. Uh, the, the sort of unique races of Eberron are the Warforged, which are sentient golems, you know, sort of created for wars or artificial life forms, now having to sort of figure out their place in the world now that there is no war. Uh, changelings, and changelings were originally first draft of Eberron, I just had doppelgangers as a player race with the idea that you would have a class to gain your full doppelganger abilities. And we decided it was just cleaner to just say, well, here's a sort of lower powered version of doppelgangers. So again, the the idea was there at the start, but it was using, you know, uh, doppelgangers. Likewise, shifters were sort of a way to say, we want a little bit of the flavor of lycanthropes, but we don't want to just say players play werewolves. Um, and then the other race certainly came from as far back as I think the, the ten-page document was the Kalistar, who are the idea of a race of people who have connections to these spirits from the plane of dreams, and so that idea of these people, this sort of secret war with forces from the plane of dreams, that was certainly something that was there very early on. Um, the two other things that were critically added, the artificer uh, is the idea of now that we have said magic is treated as a science, the artificer is essentially the arcane engineer. That the wizard sort of uses spells, the artificer is someone who understands sort of the technology of magic and mainly use, you know, basically MacGyver, you know, can make lots of little uh, magic items on the spur of the moment. Now, the artifice was not in the Wayfinder's Guide uh, to Eberron, which is the fifth edition release. That's because Wizards was already sort of had something in motion on their end. Uh, but it will be released in Arts Arcana relatively soon. And once it is there, we will be putting it in the Wayfinder's Guide. So the Wayfinder's Guide is basically uh, me and uh, Rudy Rutenberg. And again, so that's the stuff we were developing. The one other sort of core unique mechanical element to Eberron is the idea of dragon marks, the dragon marked houses. A dragon mark is a mark on your skin uh, <laughs> that indicates essentially that there is a magical potential in your bloodline uh, that manifests, granting you certain magical abilities, and that the families that have these powers in Eberron have sort of used those to corner certain aspects of the economy. Uh, so you have the house of you know the mark of healing. You have the mark of passage, which you know manages transportation, 
And uh, that was a new element added specifically for Eberron, uh, added in the 100 page document. And uh, in third edition, it was done with the feet tree. In fifth edition, because feet trees aren't really a thing, people get fewer feats uh, and things. Uh, we're trying it out as essentially an aspect of uh, like a sub-race. Uh, so you play a dragon-marked elf or a dragon-marked halfling instead of being a stout or a lightfoot or things like that. I really like the way that works. I like the kind of stories you can tell with it. There are various complications and issues, but we won't bog down on that now. So if the artificers are not coming back in their purest form in 5e, what other changes can we expect from 3.5 to 5e? So the artificer will be back, it's just a matter of time. And, and this is the thing of that what has been released so far, the Wayfinder's Guide to Eberron, uh, the whole point to that is that's a bridge into Eberron. It's trying to give enough information that someone who doesn't know anything about it can at least jump in with it. Uh, and at the same time, it's trying to hand you the most critical mechanics. You need the new races, you need the dragon marks. Ideally, you need the artificer, and you know that'll be in there as soon as we can have it but it's not trying to be a sort of full uh, source book with everything you can possibly know. So coming back to the question about will the Dalkera be there, they certainly will. You know, that's a matter of, there's two things that will happen from here. At some point, Wizards will hopefully decide to release a fully official hardcover Eberron book. And that will be a bigger thing with, you know, that will not just be the Wayfinder's Guide with a hardcover. It will be a different book that is designed to serve as a full Eberron source book. Uh, and that will include things like the Dalkir, the Dreamy Dark. You know, I would expect that to include support for psionics, because hopefully by then there will be psionics. Um, in the shorter term, uh, it is possible for anyone to write material and release material for Eberron on the DMs Guild. There is already at least one very good Eberron bestiary uh, up on the DMs Guild. Uh, and again, I'm going to be writing stuff of my own, so you know, I'll write stuff about my opinions on the Dow here and such sooner or later. Uh, it's just a question of time. Um, as for the core question of what else has changed, uh, to a large degree, the main thing that has changed is simply the mechanics. And one of the things to me is that um, even where those mechanics have changed, it's not our goal to dramatically you know, have that impact the flavor of the setting. So critically, Dragon Mark's switching to uh, being part of your sub-race, the idea from the start is that a Dragon Mark is something that generally develops in adolescence toward, uh, as a result of stress, uh, and tying it to race and letting that interact with background lets you have that story. The most important thing is someone can have it at first level. Uh, the fact that in third edition you could develop a dragon mark later in life was largely just an artifact of the system rather than how it was supposed to work. And to me, that story of someone developing a dragon mark late in life is more compelling when that mark is either aberrant or sybaris because half the people who are part of a dragon mark house develop a dragon mark. It's not really that cool for you to have gotten the least mark. You to have gotten a Sybaris mark, that's cool. That's drawing you, that's making your character someone exceptional. And so to me, even though I'm, we were probably gonna release something that tries out you know, another version of Dragon Marks, uh, to me, the loss of 
but I can't have my fourth level character suddenly develop a normal lesser dragon mark, you know, base dragon mark. That's again a change that was never really part of the whole idea of the story. It was just a side effect of the way it was mechanically represented. Um, likewise, there's a couple things on the Warforged, which again, the Warforged are not in their final form. They are being tried out. The whole concept of Warforged being able to change their armor type at the end of a long rest is very much, it's a way to try to address the problem of I made a Warforged wizard, but then I ended up getting heavy armor proficiency and I feel lame because I can't change my armor. There may be other ways to do that, but the whole point to me is the fact that Warforged can change their armor easily doesn't mean that it's something most or you know many Warforged ever do, or that it is easy for them to do. It is simply they have the capacity uh, so again, there is a lot that I feel has dramatically changed. We are simply trying to represent the world in 5th edition. And back to the question that came up earlier about, well, what about the timeline? How has the world changed? Uh, at the moment, it has to be. You know, our goal is still, you know, I suspect that if a core book comes out, it would still be at 998. Uh, because that is a particular moment in history when a lot is going on, and our goal isn't to force people who are already playing Eberron campaigns to have to throw out all their stuff. It would be more, we'll take this as your mechanical guideline and think about how it would, you know, your campaign would interpret on it. Uh, with that said, what I like about the DMs Guild is, again, any of us can write stuff for Eberron now. And I'd love to, at some point, say, what do I think Eberron looks like 50 years in the future? particular, what do I think it would be like to run a game during the Dakani Empire or during the War of the Mark? Uh, and those are all things that people can do now, even if they aren't necessarily going to be official. So on the timeline, is this still in the same time frame, or is it like a, a time jump? Or? Still in the same time frame. That's what I'm saying, is that okay. it is not my intention, you know, yeah, so we are not at the moment advancing the time. And then back on mechanics a little bit, you've used action points before to give it that kind of swashbuckling, yes. train jumping feel to the action. Is that going to still be a thing in 5e? Not, well see, this is the thing, is that we thought about that. You know, the whole point of action points in the first place was to make Eberron characters essentially feel like they could be pulp heroes, and that they could beat the odds. Uh, one of the things about it is that D&D has in a number of ways changed towards Eberron. Uh, <laughs> that things like inspiration, that basically sort of covers that. And they've, they've got the option of hero points, which pretty much are action points, and you can use those if you want. I don't use them in the Eberron campaigns I'm running because I'm perfectly happy with inspiration and the way that works, and the characters do feel more uh, more dramatic. And other ways that I feel has changed towards it, you know, will come up later, uh, you know, are the things like the introduction of cantrips, rituals, things like that, or things that actually help to embrace uh, Eberron's concept of widespread magic. And uh, so, so yeah. So you talked about um, the, the rituals and that makes me think of like resurrection spells, which yes. are not the most common yes. in Eberron, which so, makes me very scared. <laughs> so this is sort of the point of uh, Eberron, the, the quick glance people often get on it is they think it's a high magic setting. It's got flying airships, it's got magical robots, it's, you know, it's gotta be crazy magic. And the idea of it is not that it is high magic. I mean, like to say it's wide magic. It is widespread, lower level magic. OK? 
because the idea is insane. It's magic implemented in a way that seems to make sense. One of the things we say from the start is that high-level casters are rare. And for that matter, any player character is rare, something, again, 5th edition is moved towards by saying that NPCs don't use the same as players. And so that just by being a wizard, you are better at arcane magic than, you know, 99.9% .9 of the people out there. The common spellcaster is what's called a mage right, and they may only know, like, a ritual, you know, and uh, so part of that idea is same, because a lot of people say, oh, magic's common, oh, that's just not, it's not interesting, it's not magical anymore. What we're saying is lower level magic, you know, magic from first to third level is common. We light the streets with a continual flame. We clean our room using prestidigitation. Uh, you know, on the battlefield, we're throwing fireballs around. But teleportation, resurrection, these are things, okay, well, not resurrection, raise dead. These are things that we know are there. We know if you've got a lot of money or you know the right people, these are things you could do. It's not bizarre to us that the dead can be raised, but it is also not, if I die, no one's got the money to raise me. Uh, and so it's the thing is, that level, up to fifth level, is where we say that's out there. And people know it's out there, but it's not common. And then when you get above that to the idea of straight up resurrection, resurrecting someone from ashes. That's like, wow, you know, you know, that is something that we've heard legends of people being able to do that. Maybe dragons can do that or something. But again, that is magical even to the people of Eberron. And it's further one of the ideas we get to is the idea that magic should be treated as a science, which means new advances have to be discovered. You can't just do sort of whatever it is you want uh, in the main world. Your wizard might learn a spell that no one else has figured out how to cast, but no one else has figured out how to cast that yet. Uh, it's a representation of your talent. Um, the other point on that is everyone has magic robots, though I hate that term because they're not robots, uh, and airships. But actually, the Warforged were only created 30 years ago in the setting. And airships were only created eight years ago in the setting. Then this is trying to say the last war, the uh, major civil war that sort of drives a lot of the story of Eberron, drove innovation. And so that we are seeing a lot of things that are new. Wand slingers are a new thing for the world. And that that's the idea that magic doesn't have to be something that if there's airships, they've been around for thousands of years. We're saying, no, someone came up with airships, and that's a new thing. And think about the way that air travel or new technological developments affect our world. We want that field to be happening in everyone. Sounds almost like the Industrial Revolution of D&D. Exactly the idea. And again, when you just look at the last 200 years of our history, it is that point that advancement can start speeding up. And to me, that's where Everon is, is that Everon is sort of, if you compared it to our world, it's close to sort of late 19th, early 20th century. We have something that is similar to the telegraph and speaking stones. We have something equivalent to the railroad. We're just getting into air travel, but we don't have telephones. We don't have widespread use of automobiles. You know that there are things where it's like, we're starting to get these things that make our life easier, but we're not there yet. You know, and that there could be airships right now only house clearing to to pilot them. Someone could figure out a way around that, but that's gonna be a big thing that is gonna have a big impact on the set. And those are plot lines you can explore. So between the use of magic in Eberron being lower level magic is more widespread and the 
you know, lack of action points being kind of replaced by inspiration. Do you feel like the newer additions allow you tighter rules, looser rules? How so? Well, I mean, I'm always generally a fan of looser rules. And one of the things I always say about things, and I write about this a lot on my website, which just to uh, point to that is keith-baker.com. Uh, one of the things I always point out is don't see lost. The rules are rules. They are underlying mechanics. The flavor that you put on top of them can fit, you know, be changed to fit your story. It is the whole point that a bard, for example, does not have to be a musician. A bard could be a spy. A barbarian can be someone who is actually just carefully cultivated, uh, you know, a focused form of aggression. You know, enters a battle trance, uh, and that it's the same way, you know, sort of with these other things. Uh, you know, this is part of what we say is, is again, just because a spell is out there doesn't mean anyone in Eberron has figured out how to cast it or, you know, things like that. So I'm always on sort of what's the story and then how do the mechanics underlie that story. So this is sort of part of the point. We always in Eberron said that there is a class of working class mages who perform useful services. The fact of the matter is that third edition magic really didn't work very well for that because if I can cast Arcane Lock and I can only cast it once per day, that's not a great, yeah, I can, I can fix a lock once. Uh, and the introduction of rituals as a thing where I can do this over and over, it's a matter of money and time. Now that's something that we can base a job off of. And that, you know, that's just a way again where uh, now we can start to interpret, you know, these things. Again, the story hasn't changed. It just happens that now we've got a slightly better way of doing it. Now, the big change to this is, as the question that came up was firearms. You know, things I wouldn't allow in Eberron. I don't like guns in Eberron because guns are a technological innovation. And the whole point of Eberron was we want to think about how magic can be used instead. Now, part of the, you know, what's the magical equivalent of a gun? One of the simple things is wands. But the problem is in 3.5, where we were originally creating Eberron, wands weren't trivial. You know, A, just because of their power level, uh, you know, they were expensive. A wand's 750 gold pieces, and once you run, you know, once you fire off your clip, you're done, and you throw it away. That wasn't something you could see in the hands of a common soldier. Uh, as we have moved forward, fifth edition, by adding cantrips and having both cantrips and relatively easy access to cantrips, saying that anybody can learn Firebolt if they really want to, uh, and just use it over and over, and then the idea of the wand as an arcane focus, that again, it's just 10 gold pieces, it doesn't actually do anything, it's just a focus for my magical uh, ritual, has allowed us to say, well, let's have wand slingers, who are just people who have mastered a few uh, you know, cantrips or spells that they use for things. So I've been running what amounts to a Western game, although it's in the East because it's in Kabara, so the Wild East. Um, and you know, part of the point is that you know, we've got there, you got the old man with you know, his staff over his shoulder and uh, the, you know, the sheriff pulling out his rod when there's trouble. And uh, yeah, I know that didn't come out right right. <laughs> The sheriff, crying out loud, just respect. Um, and uh, and to me, you know, that does sort of it captures the feel of when the guy saunters into the saloon and he's got three wands tucked in his belt, you know, of different uh, 
imbued woods, you know, because he's a fancy, uh, <laughs> fancy guy from New Throne. Uh, you know, it captures that same sort of feel, and I don't, I don't feel the need to have guns when now we have pawns. Again, going back to the, the sure. loose rules, one of the things you seem to be very loose about is alignment. Loose. <laughs> very loosey goosey. We're not um, very aligned. So, this is another way that D&D has, again, sort of moved towards Eberron a bit, though not so much. In fact, when I originally wrote Bladefinder's Guide, I got a note from, I think it was, it was either Crawford or Perkins, saying, eh, D&D isn't really that hard on alignment anyway these days. And I'm like, yeah, except for the part where it still says in the Monster Manual, all orcs are evil. Um, Eberron, from the start, in part because of the idea of the noir influence, you know, we wanted there to be room for more moral ambiguity, more shades of gray. You don't just see an orc and say, it's an orc, I can kill it. Uh, what we basically said is all intelligent creatures pretty much are choosing their own path. Uh, and unless an alignment is imposed by magic, uh, you know, or that you are something like a demon, where you are literally an embodiment of evil, and if you were not evil, you would be something else. Uh, that alignment is unpredictable. That alignment is about, you know, uh, your beliefs, your you know, personal direction. And so first off, we dropped the whole idea of any mundane, normal race being fixed to a particular alignment. Beyond that, we generally just downplay the idea of alignment. Like, uh, I wrote a whole article on this, it's out on my website, but one of the main points to me was that in 3.5, when we were writing this, you have paladins. Paladins had at will detect evil. And that if an evil person is an irredeemable monster, then uh, first off, what we didn't want was the thing that came up with our mystery game last, uh, last panel, of there's been a murder, quick, detect evil. Oh, it was you. You know, well, that wasn't very interesting. Uh, and so part of it was to say uh, that if that exists, you know, because if all evil people are monsters and I have a thing that tells me you are evil, then literally why hasn't society done something? You know, uh, and so part of the point to me is to say we have to justify the existence of evil. We have to say that, yeah, we know it's there, but that's just a thing, and that we have to make it so it doesn't spoil the, uh, the story. And so to me, it's a matter of, I tend to say the simple answer is it's empathy. It's that the evil person doesn't really think a lot about the consequences of their actions. Uh, on others. The neutral person just doesn't really, you know, is, is, you know, pretty much like most of us, and the good person is more altruistic and is actually thinking about others. It's basically if you find a wallet, do you take the money put in your pocket and throw it away? Do you drop it off in a lost and found? Or do you actually, like, take out the person's ID and try and track them down and put some effort into finding them? And uh, so the point to me is I like to say that in Eberron, Luke Skywalker is evil. Uh, because the bit where Yoda says, oh, much anger in him, much darkness. I'm like, that's a paladin using detect evil. He said, I don't know if you're gonna do anything with this, but you've got some issues. You know, you're capable of doing something. And so, so basically the point to me is that in Eberron, there are certain roles 
that you want an evil person for. Because frankly, if you want to be a good repo man, you gotta be kind of a little evil. You know that you guys can't be too soft, or you know tax collectors, or you know certain things like that. There are jobs that would just be hard for a good person under this system to do that yet are important to society. We need tax collectors. You know, um, and if anyone here is a tax collector, I'm sorry, I don't mean to. to <laughs> um, and and that way, the point is when the paladin searches the room and says you're evil, uh, that tells them something. That tells them you can do this without remorse. But it could mean that you, the good person, killed that person because it needed to be done for the benefit of society. And so it's basically, it's not that we removed alignment, because alignment was always a core part of D&D. We couldn't just take it out, because then how does all, you know, and have all these things. But we just said it means something different. Someone being evil doesn't actually mean that they are somehow now, you know, the monster you have to get. This is actually, I think, where people were saying D&D moved more in this direction. It's one of the things D&D is, is, did. It was change the way detect evil works. You know, paladins don't detect evil anymore. You know, they've sort of pushed that down a bit. Um, another thing that ties to this is the role of deities in the setting, mm -hmm. uh, religion. And this, I was gonna go, so. Yeah, yeah, well, as I said, I knew that was sort of, it ties to the same sort of approach, was in developing Eberron in the first place, one of the, the whole goals was Forgotten Realms is out there. For, you know, at the time, it was popular, it was successful. Uh, we don't need another setting that does the same things. And one of the things is throughout the history of D&D, most of the major settings, not all, but most, uh, have basically incarnate gods. That gods can appear, they have hit points, you can, if they don't come to your world, you can go to their plane, you can have lunch with them or beat them up. Um, and the point to me is a world in which that is true is a completely different world from the one we live in. Because it comes to that point where suddenly religion isn't about faith. It's not about do I believe in this thing, because of course I believe in him, he just beat up my cousin. He's right over there. Uh, and it just is more actually, to me, religion and Forgotten Realms is more like professional sports. It's more like <laughs> and, um, yeah. And so with Eberron, we wanted the idea, because it comes back to that idea that we wanted shades of gray, we wanted more ambiguity, and so one of the points is to say, gods do not manifest in the world, and you will never meet a god. And by doing that, by saying clerics have power, but even they don't know for sure, they had believed they have power because of their faith and because it's being granted, uh, but they don't know. You know, they have to have faith. And that also means that because of that, we can have a lot of interesting stories that are a part of our world. We can have trials for heresy. We can have religious schisms. Because the problem is, if you have a big thing about heresy in another setting, if we could literally say, hey, Thor, which of us is right? And he's just like, it's him. Then you're like, okay, case solved. You know, <laughs> job done. Um, and, and so we wanted a world where there isn't that final authority. There isn't that final answer. It is about what people believe. And where it is entirely possible in Eberron to be an atheist and say, I just think the cleric is some kind of freaky sorcerer. You know, he thinks he's getting his power from divine stuff. But, uh, and, and again, that was just an opportunity to 
do something different and to have a world that supports a different kind of story. I love the time of troubles. You know, it's a great storyline, but it's out there. You know, and this was just doing something different. Well, we're about in a Q and A session. So, is there anything that you wrote down that we need to get to before we start taking extra questions? Uh, let's just quickly. Uh, so, we already covered. You know, uh, I'm just gonna. Run down these real quick. You know, were there plot changes to three from the three five version? No. The the plot, you know, the basic story of the world has remained the same. Uh, there was a question about my undersea setting, which is to say, in the hundred page document that I originally wrote, the original setting Bible for Eberron, part of my whole thing is again trying to say if this thing existed, what's the logical consequence of having it in the world? And one of those things was in D D. We have a whole lot of sentient undersea races. We have the Suwagin, we have Murpho, we have Lakatha, we have Tritons. That these are just as intelligent, sophisticated, and in many cases more intelligent than humans. Why do we not know? Why do they not have nations? Are they laying claim to the seas? If I'm going to cross with my shipping line, am I paying them tribute? You know, this should be just like another nation. You know, the Sawagan nation should be no different from the nation of elves. It's just they're on the surface and they're underwater. And so I had originally, on the map of the world, all the water was broken into these are the political territories of the different undersea nations. Uh, and that was a part of the world. And part of that was because there's magical that you go there. You know, I mean, like, let's explore that. Um, and that was dropped out in uh, the final setting, in part because undersea adventuring in 3.5 is a pain. Uh, it's never been back in. Uh, and it is something that I've sort of snuck in here and there. In, like, Secrets of Zendrick, I do talk a bit about the Sawagin. I've tried to work some of those original ideas in. Uh, I don't know that it's something like, again, if in, you know, next year they came out with an Eberron hardcover, would it be in there? Probably not, is my hunch. However, certainly something I'd love to put up on the DMs Guild at some point when I have time. You know, it's not my highest priority just because there are a lot of things like the planes, you know, I'd like to get to first. Uh, but it is a topic that now, because the DMs Guild is open, I could write about it, and I will, and, you know, when there's time. Uh, I'll come back to that one. Uh, further development of psionics and new classes. Part of the point of that is in 5th edition, again, the reason the artificer isn't in there is because they're already working on it at Watson. And uh, the same is true of psionics. I am not going to just throw my version of psionics suddenly into like the Wayfinder's Guide because they're working on psionics. I do think that there is an excellent chance that by the time they would decide to do an Eberron hardcover, it would they would have a Cyanic system in place and that it would be worked in as part of that. They've been working on the Mystic uh, and things like that. And so as I said, I think it will happen. And to me, it's there. In writing the Wayfinder's Guide, we certainly sort of suggest that uh, Kalashtar have telepathic abilities. Uh, we're just not, you know, we're saying, well, you know, you can be a monk or a cleric as a Kalashtar. You don't have to be a scion. Uh, we just want to make sure that when psionics come out, it still feels like a Kalashtar is a good match to that. Um, explanation of other continents. So, basically, throughout the history of Eberron, we have, there are books on Sarabona, on Zendrik, uh, on Arganesson. 
when I wrote the Wayfinder's Guide, part of the point was wanting to say this is a fairly tight focus because I want you to be able to, without having the whole full source book, to say, well, I could try and run something tomorrow. And so it's a fairly narrow Corvair and really sharp. Um, certainly, if a full official source book comes out, it would cover all of them. Uh, second, uh, I'll certainly write about more places. I really want to write about more of the countries in Eberron itself, you know, in Corvair itself, that have not been really developed in much detail. Sure. Uh, yeah. Uh, but beyond that, bless you. Um, uh, but beyond that, also, most of the flavor of books like Secrets of Sormona and Secrets of Zendrick uh, still applies. You know, the flavor hasn't changed, it just means you'll have to fudge some mechanics uh, if you do that. But things like City of Stormreach, a whole lot of just the story ideas of City of Stormreach are still perfectly valid. Uh, you're just going to have to do a couple little tweaks, you know, on your NPCs and monsters. Um, am I collaborating with Watsi? Uh, well, you know, they came to me to do the Wayfinder's Guide. Uh, sort of the degree of collaboration going forward, uh, I don't know yet. You know, we'll see how it goes. Part of it is they've said, you know, basically, Keith, you can write whatever you want on the DM scale just like anybody else. So uh, if I write a thing on the Plains of Eberron, that is not something I would be writing with Watsi as an official thing. It would be something I am writing. Um, I am certain that if they decide to do, you know, basically, again, the decision on will they do like a full lever on hardcover, it's gonna depend on what's the response. Does it seem like there's enough interest to justify it? I am, you know, I'd say 99% certain that if they did, uh, they would reach out to me and say, let's make this, this book together. Um, but on the other hand, it's not, I am not personally uh, like guiding the adventurers league development or anything like that. I'm always happy uh, you know, I, you know anyone, who, and this is a big point. Anyone, if you are doing something for the Adventurers League, hey, you know, drop me a line. Let me know if you have a question. You know, I'm always happy uh, to help with stuff. But it is still the case that I'm a freelancer uh, doing my own thing. I'm not uh, working directly with there. Um, I think that covers the questions we've got. The one that that was sort of interesting. And then we'll get to, you know, so if people do want to line up the mic there, uh, we'll uh, ask some ask some other ones. But the one question was, someone had talked about introducing Warforge to other settings. And to me, it's the same principle of, well, what if we want to drop dragon marks in other settings or things like that. Um, the whole thing to me is Warforge in particular are these, uh, you know, living constructs that were created to fight in a war. And part of what makes their story interesting to me is that idea that you are literally a weapon that now has no war to fight and has been told, go off, live your life. And you're like, what is life? Um, and that, you know, they have this very interesting place in the world. So in transporting them to another setting, one of the questions is, are you trying to give them that same place? You know, are you saying they were created for a conflict, they're out of that? And if so, you can do them smaller scale. You can say it was just this one nation or this one wizard's house that, you know, made a hundred Warforged. You know, that's basically the question is, if you introduce them to the new setting, are you introducing them on mass? Are you introducing them as a wizard made a Warforged and that's Bob's character? Or are you saying, oh yeah, one nation built 500 of them and there is a Warforged legion that you were a member of? 
So to me, I just think about what is the story and what makes it interesting. What impact will that have uh, on a you know a Warforged character? And the same goes to Dragon Mark houses. If you want to use Dragon Marks, it's just well, what is their role? You know, the mechanics and the story role are two separate things. And so if you're dropping the mechanics into the setting, just think about how does it have a compelling role in this setting. Uh, with that said, we've got about 15 minutes uh, change, so anyone wants, go ahead and grab a mic. Oh, it's a mic! Quick, freeze! Excuse me. Um, you were talking about like magical mechanics as far as like new developments in magic. Yes. What were your thoughts on the apparently now dead lore master um, in, uh, for the wizard? where when a wizard took it at second level, they could cast a spell like a firebolt or something and on the fly change the um, the damage type mm -hmm. when they cast it. Sure. Now, one of the critical uh, responses to that is that whole idea that player characters are remarkable. And so one of the first things to drop in is the idea of a sorcerer or a warlock is, you know, so basically magic is a science. There is a force of energy in the world that responds to formulas, rituals, and some form of concentration uh, and direction. Uh, the idea is that a sorcerer really doesn't understand it. They just have a natural talent that they have learned to develop. And frankly, the, the funny thing is I see uh, Harry Potter, they're sort of like sorcerers because you have to have the natural, you know, there is a particular talent and muggles can't be sorcerers, you know, can't be wizards. Well then, you know, in Eberron, that means that's more like a sorcerer, because you can't decide to be a sorcerer, you are, you aren't. Uh, warlocks make deals, they don't need to understand magic either. Someone just basically gave them a gift and now they can do this thing. Wizards, the idea is that they understand the principles and in a much deeper way. Uh, so wizards and artificers, if a mage right uh, or a, a magic adept using the feet is someone who's sort of like a plumber. I have learned how to do this one thing. I have learned how to fix microwaves, which is not what a plumber does, but I switch to an electrician on the fly. I know how to fix a microwave. Uh, that a wizard or an artificer is your, you know, Edison or Tesla, who's like, oh, I understand. I'm going to make a better microwave, or I'm going to change things. So the idea of being able to change the damage type on the fly means that I understand the principles of what I'm doing to a degree that I do understand. If I just change this variable here, that alters the damage type. And so that's a reflection of that character's sort of just that they are a magical prodigy, you know, that they are uh, good at this. And this comes back to the point that, again, most casters in Eberron are not wizards. You know, they are matrons. Now, again, there are wizards out there. It's just saying that if I decide this NPC is a wizard, you know, that means he's really good. You know, he knows what, uh, he understands this in a different way. Um, but again, to me, that makes perfect sense. I'm changing the variables. I understand this process is what creates a lightning bolt. If I tweak it this way, I can create a fire bolt. Uh, you know, so that's part of that scientific explanation. Hey, Dave. Um, so 
I had a player ask me a really interesting question uh, the other day, and I gave him the best answer I could, but I'm kind of interested in what your answer And I was is. hoping you were going to say, I had a player ask me, where can I find stats for sale Murnax? <laughs> uh, and I would say, oh, well, you could get the uh, Adventurer's Almanac. Thank you. Yes, <laughs> but uh, no, he's, uh, he asked me, um, what makes the Daughters of Sora Kel like any different than uh, another sovereign of another nation, and not in the sense of overall their hags, and of course that's different, but more in the sense of like, well, how are they any more evil than like an evil king or an evil general? First off, I don't see the daughters of Sorakel as evil at all, so let's start with that. <laughs> uh, so, for those of you who know nothing about the setting, uh, in the setting you have the nation of Droam. Droam is a kingdom of monsters, and the whole premise is that. Basically, you had this sort of area off uh, that as the main human nations expanded, they drove things like trolls and, you know, ogres and things like that sort of away from the path of civilization. So you had this area on the coast that's filled with all the monsters that have been driven into the darkness. Uh, and that during the last war, the Daughters of Sora Kel, a, tri a trio of three very powerful hags, came together and said, tell you what guys, we're gonna be a nation. You know, they also came with a big army of war trolls uh, and you know, things like that. And basically <laughs> said, you're gonna be a nation and we're in charge. Um, but uh, that basically they built this nation and then the point here is that the other nations have refused to, uh, um, to accept it. You know, they don't, um, blanking on the word here, they don't recognize it. And part of the idea here is on a high level, it's essentially saying that it's seen as a terrorist nation. You know, that it's seen as they're violent, they're dangerous, we don't see that they have an established government that we, you know, we don't just see three random, you know, hacks as a system for, you know, you're tossing swords out of a, out of a pond. You know, this is not something we see. Uh, part of this is clearly fear of the monsters, uh, that we don't recognize these people as our equal, that we see them as the other. You know, we are afraid of them, and so we don't want to uh, give them that recognition. Uh, another part of that uh, is the idea that most people don't believe it will last. It has only been around for less than 10 years, and basically, again, the, you know, Queen Arala is like, don't be ridiculous. You know, they will clearly collapse four years from now. We're not going to take them seriously. Um, and many people would like them to collapse and not be taken seriously. Me. I don't see them as evil at all because in everyone, monsters aren't evil. You know, one of the things we say, or if they are evil, it's that class of evil that doesn't mean, you know, what we say is that the bad guys aren't always monsters and the monsters aren't always bad guys. And if you read my novel, The Queen of Stone, a lot of it is set in Droam and it's basically saying, hey, the people in, in you know, the Knolls in Droam are really just working guys trying to do their own thing. I did just finish listening to that audiobook yeah. and Sora Mania does even an entire battalion of people. So she does, but I will note that that was during a time of war. True. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and and this, is, this is essentially a part of, uh, of the monsters and a part that comes up in conversations with the Queen of Stone. You know, is the point of, you're the ones who think we're monsters, so why shouldn't we be monsters? You know, and that again, uh, to agree, you come back to nature is harsh. You know, nature made the hag. The hag has the ability to eat a battalion of people. Sometimes she's going to do it. <laughs> um, but basically, to me, 
the, the daughters have not only brought unity to an area that previously was just war, you know, uh, random warlords, uh, but they are basically trying to give an unrepresented group of people a voice uh, and give them a place in the setting. And so they definitely come back to the they are evil in the sense of they are ruthless in accomplishing their goals, and frankly, why shouldn't they eat your uh, battalion of people on their border? Um, but, but to me, I don't see them as evil in the sense of they're trying to conquer the world and enslave everybody. They're just building their own nation. Uh, it is also the case, of course, that they're supposed to be intentionally mysterious of what are, what is their endgame? Why are they demanding? Uh, but the point is, that's unclear. They're not Sauron trying to kill everybody. Uh, that there is a mystery to them. But I've taken a long time on this question, so we should move on. Yeah, exactly. I just have a uh, quick lore-based question. Sure. Because it's more uh, toned towards giants. Yeah. Like frost giants, cloud yep. giants, stuff yep. like that. I know they're more rare in the sense that they reside in this, this southern continent. Cinder, yep. Is it... Because I run a home uh, custom sandbox campaign based on Eberron, would it break the lore to have them interact with the main continent? Not at all. Sense? So a couple different points there. The giants in Eberron, uh, you know, Eberron, most of the main monstrous forces have some piece of established history. The giants were the dominant culture of the, uh, the continent of Zendrick. Their civilization collapsed tens of thousands of years ago. Part of the idea is the original giants probably weren't giants, they were titans. Uh, or at least some of them were, and that the giants we have today are essentially in some way devolved forms of the original giants. Because again, it's also been 40,000 years. Um, so first off, Zendrik is where most giants are because it's where most giants are. But they were an advanced magical civilization. There is absolutely nothing wrong with saying, well, yeah, 40,000 years ago, a you know, uh, again, some of them we do say, like the fire giants in some form, were part of that civilization. If you want to say, yeah, there's a colony of fire giants that established themselves in uh, the Iron Root Mountains, sure, I got no problem with that. You know, we're saying in the core setting, we wouldn't uh, make them like one of the major civilizations. Yeah, I would be part of like a rare occurrence. But certainly, you know, it's easy to say if their ancestors could have come from Zendrick long ago. Or even you have in Droam, coming back to our friends in Droam, we've already established that there's at least a couple of giants in there who are actually recent, have come over in the last century, you know, and so you can do that too. Giants, if they're intelligent, you know, especially something like a storm giant, which, you know, generally has significant magic, they can fly over, you know, yeah. or something like that. Uh, so, yeah, there's nothing wrong with having giants anywhere you want to have giants. All right, thank you. I um, hope this isn't too specific, but now that there are no more alignment restrictions with 5e, are there paladins of Vol? Absolutely, there's always been paladins of Vol. Uh, so uh, even when they were lawful good, there were paladins of Vol. Um, so the blood of Vol, the whole principle of the blood of Vol is essentially that we all have a spark of divinity within ourselves, that we were all meant to be divine, and that depending which branch of the faith you follow, uh, one belief at least is that the sovereigns, uh, the, the gods the other people worship, basically cursed us. That mortality is a curse to keep us from attaining our divine potential. 
uh, and that the true power we should be worshiping is not these gods, it is the divinity within you, that you should find your own power. And so a paladin of the blood of all is simply a paladin who, again, is drawing on finding their own power within and using it to defend their people, to protect, to do all the things a paladin would normally do. Uh, the whole point, um, you know, again, with the blood of Vols, it is still about look after your people, death is the end, there's nothing after it that's good, uh, so we need to try and fight for life and to protect the people we care about. And that's certainly a path a paladin can follow. That paladin in these days might be an evil paladin, but that just means, again, they're going to be ruthless in accomplishing those goals. Uh, but that as a general rule, they're still about, you know, and again, some people at Mokla, um, you know, are more, I'm using this power for my personal gain. I'm not trying to protect my friends. But both of those paths are valid for a paladin of the blood ball. And we are at, we have five minutes. We'll see if we can get these. I'll try to be quick. Um, and I'll be hanging out afterwards, you know, as well. So again. You, you did uh, mention previously before we started, I asked for hands about Pathfinder and a few yep. other things. Everon, is there any intent for you to be publishing more of a campaign setting that is more story-driven and less mechanical-driven so that it's easily transferable to any other system or just free-form play uh, in mind? Especially right. hard that, yeah. possibly? Well, see, again, that's that's the basic issue is it's not really up to me. Yeah. Uh, you know, a hardback, you're basically looking to wizards, and wizards may not do that. You know, I, in writing my stuff, try to at least make sure that the ideas are portable as much as I can. For the DMs Guild, it's certainly possible, uh, but with the DMs Guild, there are certain restrictions. It is like, you know, basically, I'm still trying to figure out, like, I am working on a thing for a convention in uh, a little over two months that is definitely an Everon story that is totally going to be a more abstract, story-driven system, precisely because the people at that play, that the convention, it's a story game convention. They aren't looking to roll dice. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to make a different everyone thing. What I don't know is if I could publish that on the DMs Guild or not. And I don't know. I just got to read all the fine print and you know find out. Um, so I would I would just say that again, it is the case with the DMs Guild. What I've been told is you can't publish material that does not have game material in it. So I could not just publish a bunch of story stuff. Uh, but. I always at least want to be trying to consider the fact that people playing it are not necessarily playing it in a particular system. What's that convention? Uh, that convention is called Ambercon Northwest Portland, Oregon. Uh, and I haven't posted my games yet, so I'm just saying, if anyone's going to Ambercon, I'm going to post some wacky everyone story stuff. Uh, this is more of an esoteric world building type question. Yep. Um, you, when, at least in the Everon company, at least to my understanding, you basically have Fantasy America. I'm not so sure, sure I'd say that, but go ahead. Kind of, and then you have like the the psionic, unified, basically space communist over to the side. Um, so, what was why was your choice for not because they don't 100% map to, but they do somewhat map to real world things. Um, because you seem to be drawing that kind of uh, inspiration. Why don't you have like an why didn't you choose say, like an old world where like most of the humans came from that still kind of exists that is less technologically advanced or so I mean there's a couple different things to unpack there. 
Uh, first off, in Eberron, Sherlona is the old world from which humans came from. It just got conquered by the Inspired a thousand years ago, and they've changed its culture. But if you look to Sherlona, the history of those pre, uh, the pre-Inspired civilizations are there. There is a more primitive uh, you know, human homeland, if you will. Uh, it's just that it doesn't exist anymore, you know, because again, things change. Uh, part of it is, so Eberron was concretely not designed to be this country is this country, or this is that. There are certainly flavors. You can certainly look to Karnath and say, Karnath has elements of Prussia, Russia, and Transylvania sort of thrown in, you know. It's got your sort of, it's cold, it's bleak, they're very militant, and there's vampires, you know. But it is not beyond that, trying to in any way accurately, you know, hey, we've got our Baba Yaga equivalent in the Daughters of Sorakel, and she's not hanging out in Karnak. You know, so I mean, part of it to me is in world design, having touchstones that are feel familiar to people is a very useful thing. But to me, I don't want to then be lost in just saying, uh, this is fantasy Egypt, and they have cubes instead of pyramids. You know, I mean, you want things to feel uh, that they are still, and I know we're about out of time, but I don't think anyone's here in the room after us. So, um, I was finished the, finish the question. We're going to take them off, don't worry. Yeah. Uh, but basically, the point there, there's certainly the second point I just want to get to is the, because if the world's too big, you'll never get into all the details that actually in that 100-page document I wrote about, I had exactly what you're talking about. And I did have an old world with the idea that what is now Corvair was much more recently colonized. And there was some more exploration of sort of colonizing storylines and things like that, uh, which you now sort of get in Kabara. Um, and that part of the problem is just with the countries we have now, just with 13 you know, nations in, in Corvair, we still haven't had time to write as much as I would like about them. And that basically it was a thing of realizing if we then added a whole other continent with another 20 countries, it's more realistic. It feels more like our world, but I don't have time to tell you about uh, you know, Liechtenstein. And so it's just creating a lot of material that players can't actually really effectively use. Okay, last question. But good question. I was just wondering if you had uh, either seen or personally used some house rules or setting tweaks that kind of interested you. Well, and I really want you to say, I was wondering if you'd seen, um, you know, my dog or, you know, something that was like, yes, he was there. Um, well, I mean, some of the things that I've used, I put in the Wayfinder's Guide. So I don't know if you've seen the Wayfinder's Guide there, but early on there's a thing there called environmental elements, which is something I've put into my game Phoenix on Command that I use, where it's basically when you have a fight, you know, give the players a list of interesting things in the room to interact with. Um, I talked earlier about the, the cut-ups method, and that's a longer one, so I'll talk to you about that later if you didn't hear it before. Um, you know, so in other words, the answer is certainly yes. I'm now on the top of my head being like, what are some of those? You know, as I said, environmental elements is one of the big ones. Um, but it is a big point to me that I'm always on the lookout for if there's another system I like, especially the more indie story systems, is there something I can take from it and use, even if I don't have to completely transform or integrate the way I'm playing the game. Is there's a lot of just good ideas out there. Uh, 
you know, and one of the things we've talked about a bunch of times in the seminars today is that whole point of things like, does death have to be death? Or can death be a different consequence? Uh, you know, changing the stakes of things. And that's something I'm certainly prepared to do if it fits the story I'm telling. Um, and I'm always in the place where I'm going to reskin the rules to add a different cosmetic flavor if it fits what I'm trying to do. So, anyhow. Uh, and so, I think that's it. That's pretty much it. Thank you guys so much.